The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, The sermon of the day is called Faithful in the Little Things. Faithful in the Little Things. I have many Bible verses that I want to look at. First place I'm going to have you open is Matthew 25, 21. Faithful in the Little Things. Matthew 25, 21. Then we'll have some introductory scriptures. And then we'll actually, I have nine points I want to make this morning. Nine points I want to go through with respect to faithful in the little things. Let me read Matthew 25. Can't read the whole chapter. But Matthew 25, 21, Jesus is talking about his second coming. Did you know that Jesus is going to return? That's what the Bible teaches. He is. Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. He's in a supernatural body. He reigns currently as King of kings and Lord of lords over this earth and the universe. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is all powerful. He has a supernatural resurrected body and yet is omnipresent somehow. That's a mystery. He was here literally and historically 2,000 years ago. He said he's coming again, and he will, and it's literal. We don't know when that will be. It can be at any time, but it will be at his perfect time. Scripture is very clear as to what he's going to do when he does come. And some of the detail, most graphic detail, comprehensive detail we have on what it's going to be like when he comes is Matthew 24 and 25. That's the context. Jesus is coming again. Most of chapter 24 And 25 are the words of Jesus himself. And in talking about his return, when he will come to earth and reign as king of kings and lord of lords over all the nations of the earth. He gives a couple of parables to illustrate what it's like. But just let me start in this one. Matthew 25, 14. This is Jesus talking. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. My leaving right now as okay at this point he's about to die on the cross, rise himself from the dead out of the grave. And then for another 40 days he will be with his disciples in a resurrected body from the dead, preparing them as he's about to leave and go back to heaven where he came from. And then he'll return again. And that's the context. He's letting his disciples know, I'm leaving very soon, but I will return. Again. And as my disciples, here's what I want you to do while I'm gone. Whether it's a short time or whether it's a long time, I could come back quickly. I could come back immediately. That's the point of the beginning of chapter 25. You better be ready because I could come back quickly, imminently, anytime. But then he gives this parable saying, you know what? It, It could be a long time. As a matter of fact, the gospel of Luke in the parallel passage says, It's like a man, Jesus, going on a long journey. And after a very long period of time, it's been 2,000 years that he's been gone. And he wants to encourage his disciples, while you're waiting for me to return, you need to be faithful. You need to be active. You can't be idle. As a believer, you have things to do, a mission to fulfill, service to render on behalf of Christ, behalf of God. That's the context. So he says, for it is like a man about to go on a journey. That's Jesus. I'm about to go on a journey. I'm about to go back to heaven who called his own slaves or servants and entrusted his possessions to them. So Jesus is about to leave and he's going to entrust all of his disciples and believers with valuables, stewardship responsibilities. Starts doling them out to one of his disciples, followers, slaves or servants. This man, which is Jesus, gave five talents. To another, he gave two talents. To another, he gave one talent. Talent in Jesus' day was a measure of weight. Sometimes people get that confused with like a coin. It was a measure of weight. But it was a responsibility. It was valuable. It was a gift. It was entrusted to that person to take care of, to guard, to protect, to invest, to use, to bring a return, to be faithful with it. So he gives three servants different amounts. That were valuable. Verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. He invested it. And in the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. So he invested it wisely. Verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money, did not invest it, squandered it. 
Now, after a long time, there it is. It's been 2000 years. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came. Jesus will return someday and settled accounts with them all. And he will do that with every one of us. The one who had received five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, or Jesus, he's talking to, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more talents. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. Okay, that's our key verse right there. You were faithful with a few things. As a result, I will put you in charge of many things. So you could go on and read the rest of the parable. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is he wants his disciples, he wants his followers, while we are here on the earth, one of the main things that God is looking for from his followers is faithfulness. Faithful, if we're Christians. And what Jesus emphasized here is in few things. Another translation says in the little things. That's what I wanted to encourage us with today. How as Christians can we be faithful in the little things? Because scripture actually has much to say about that. So usually we spend our time looking at one of the books of the Bible and just preaching through it from chapter one, verse one, and, and going through like we've done with many books in the Bible. We've been taking a break recently and hitting on different topics, different themes that I think are relevant and important in our lives today as Christians. We need to know what the Bible has to say about it. Some of these issues that we look at, like last week, we talked about the role of a wife and women in general, and that was very microcosm in our study, very focused, very deliberate. We were picking just on the women last week. Now we're backing up and we're going to a micro level. Now this is a big picture topic. This really is relevant and applies to every Christian. And we need this because we don't always get this opportunity. But everything that we're looking at is based on Scripture, based on the Bible, comes from God. This is what he thinks. And with his help and the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, we can first understand what Scripture says about all these things, and then with his help, we hope to apply it to our life. So, again, we want to zero in on this idea that Jesus expects his disciples to be faithful, and not just faithful, but faithful in the little things. Faithful in the little things. After all, it's not always the big things aren't always the things that matter. Sometimes it's the little things in life that matter and really matter, the little things in life. What do I mean by that? Well, God isn't always necessarily looking for uh, the big things, the dramatic things, uh, like in our world, uh, the one-hit wonders of the world, flash in the pan, come and gone, superficial, shallow. God's not impressed. God's not looking for that primarily from his people, the one-hit wonders, or the get rich quick schemes those are always shallow that isn't what god is looking for in his disciples or in his disciples what is god looking for us for the most part god is looking for slow steady responsible living a consistent walk in colossians in ephesians the apostle paul calls the christian life a walk for a reason it's not a hundred yard dash. It's a walk. It really is. Slow, deliberate, steady, thoughtful. And through that, you are establishing patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking that lay the groundwork for what is yet to come. A consistent walk. What else is God looking for? Faithful, living, he wants us to be good stewards of small things, small decisions that are so important. Mundane obligations that we have, those are important to God. Many times not us. Routine responsibilities, that's what I mean by the little things. They, they matter. So that's what we want to talk about today. How do you get to the top of a 14,000 foot mountain? What My brother-in-law... That's one of the ha hobbies he had, especially when he's younger. To, he's going to climb as many 14,000-foot mountains in America as he can, and he climbed many. How do you get there? It's one step at a time. Slow, steady, persistent, sometimes arduous. That's the Christian life. So just in light of that, uh, I want to 
kind of give a caution before we just delve into these nine imperatives or expectations that God has of us, of Christians. Because when you look at this, these are commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Sometimes that threatens people. But really, these nine points amount to uh, a Christian ethic or a Christian morality, a Christian worldview. And we need to have that. We need to have a balanced worldview. So I came up with these nine things. They're not exhaustive. They're not the only things I could have brought up. Actually, I could have brought up about 27, but we didn't have time. But I thought, okay, of those 27, what are nine that are pretty universal, pretty consistent, happen routinely in our lives and in the lives of the church? And so I really honed in on those. And, And ones we don't maybe talk about very much frequently or if at all. So that's why I chose the ones that I did. But I got some reminders or caveats before we do these things. One caution is just a reminder that good works can't save you. Doing good deeds can't save you. So I don't want you to look at this as a list of good things that are going to, if you do these things and then follow them, that God's going to be impressed because he's not going to be. If you're using it for the wrong reason, if you think that doing these things is going to help save you or earn God's favor or earn forgiveness of sin or appease God or relieve your conscience or cause you to be born again or ensure your way to heaven or to avoid the judgment of hell, that this list isn't going to do it. This is not a checklist of how to get saved or get your sins forgiven or how to become a Christian. So we we need that warning. So doing good things doesn't earn God's favor. Avoiding bad things does not earn God's forgiveness. Human achievement does not impress or please God. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love, favor, forgiveness, or an eternity with him or salvation. He's not interested in human works. We are utterly incapable of doing that anyway. So God is not impressed with human achievement. Not at all. As a matter of fact, if you're not a Christian and you're trying to earn forgiveness of sin or earn appeasement with God or earn a relationship with God and you're doing it by your good works and by avoiding bad things, Scripture and Isaiah very specifically, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, what you're doing, your good deeds, they amount to filthy rags, filthy menstrual rags, literally. God is not impressed. So we can't earn forgiveness with God. doesn't matter what good works we do. There's only one good work that matters that brings us into a relationship with God, and it is the work of Jesus Christ. That's the distinctive of Christianity. That's the distinctive of the Bible. That's what it teaches. Only one work matters that pleases God. It was the work of Jesus Christ. He has been God for all eternity. God, Jesus has always existed. He is uncreated. He is one with the Father. He created the world. Jesus came down to this earth that he created. He lived in a perfect life without sin for 33 years. And he willingly, voluntarily gave himself as a sacrifice to be crucified, executed as a criminal on a cross, on purpose, according to Old Testament scriptures, according to God's eternal plan. He died on a cross as a substitute for sinners who could not save themselves. And God the Father poured out his holy wrath on Jesus 2,000 years ago when Jesus was hanging on the cross for six hours. And Jesus, who is God in a body, absorbed the holy wrath of God on behalf of sinners. Then Jesus died. He was buried, literally, in a physical body. Then three days later, he rose again from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. The Father raised him from the dead, just as he said. And he had a new resurrection body. And then 40 days later, he went back into heaven where he had come from, where he had always been. And now he reigns as king of the world. In the meantime, he's building his church and he wants his disciples to be faithful in service to him. So the only work that matters or that can bring any kind of forgiveness of sin is the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and his death on the cross on behalf of sinners. So that's an invitation to anybody here who maybe it's not a Christian, who doesn't believe and you want to get right with God, that is the Bible's answer for you. It is by grace through faith, believing in the work of Christ, apart from anything that you can do. The only thing that we do and bring to the cross or bring to God is the recognition that we are sinful, we are wicked, we are evil, we are helpless without him. God, please forgive me through Jesus Christ. And you know what? If you do that and mean it and understand it, then God 
will answer that prayer. He will save you, give you the gift of eternal life, and adopt you into his family. But for those of us who are Christians and already know everything that I just said, we do have an obligation, and work does matter. Work does matter. Doing good deeds does matter. Doing good deeds is important to God, and God gives the right perspective about it. You can have a right perspective about doing good deeds. You can have a wrong perspective about it, even as a Christian. How do I know that? Well, because it's in the Bible. How do I know that? Because I've had some wrong views about it. How do I know that? Because I know people right now who are Christians who have wrong views about it. So we need to have the right perspective about doing good deeds, doing good works. And Scripture is very clear and helps us. Romans 6.17 is probably the most one of the most helpful things to put it in perspective for Christians. When we are pursuing something like this, nine things we need to do and make a pattern in our life. When it comes to doing things and avoiding certain things, Romans 6.17, Paul commends Christians by embracing the gospel and getting saved. And then he says, as a result, you became obedient from the heart. That phrase right there, from the heart. There it is. When we do things as Christians, we have to do it with the right heart. We do it from the heart, from the spirit. That means uh, with the right attitude, with the right thinking, with the right theology, with the right motive, with God's help in keeping with Scripture, not to advance ourselves, not to make ourselves look good, not for superficial external reasons, not to earn God's forgiveness. It's from the heart. So that's our goal, to be obedient from the heart in keeping with what God has laid down. And if you are a Christian, there are all kinds of exhortations and commands and expectations from God that we are supposed to be aggressively living this Christian life, pursuing these things, not living a passive Christian life, but an aggressive, proactive one. All kinds of Bible verses. Maybe I'll just give you a couple. One is Philippians two. listen to this. Philippians chapter two, Paul talking to Christians. They are believers. They have been saved. There's only one work that saved them. That was the work of Christ. They didn't save themselves, but now they've been born again. He's given them the spirit of God to live in them. And now they're the children of God, but they now they have obligations as they remain in this world, in this life, representing Christ on earth. And here's just one command. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, So then, my beloved, so then, fellow believers, and I would say the same thing, so then, anybody who's a Christian here today at Grace Bible Fellowship, this is for you, this is for me. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, since I was your pastor, but I'm not around anymore, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work out your salvation. There it is. I want you to work out your salvation. That doesn't mean work for salvation, it's work out your salvation. You're already saved, you already have salvation. Now, work it out, put it on display, follow through with it, manifest the fact that you are a Christian and live accordingly. That's what he means. Work out your salvation. So that's a command and expectation of every Christian. We need to work out our salvation. And it's not to get forgiveness of sin. It's a command of God. You are already saved. Work out your salvation. How do you do it? With fear and trembling, with humility before God and with his help. Can't do it on my own. Can't do it. Why do we do it with fear is reverence for God and then trembling. Trembling is uh, humility and a realization that we can't do this on our own. That is the highest calling. It's an impossible calling. It is a supernatural calling to work out your salvation. Therefore, we need God's help. That's why we have fear and trembling. And that's why there's the next verse. For it is God who is at work in you. Isn't that awesome? That's the only reason that you as a Christian can work out your salvation in a way that pleases God. If you're not a Christian and you try to work out your salvation apart from God, apart from Christ, it's filthy rags. If you're a Christian and you have the spirit living in you and you try to work out your salvation, you can do it in a way that pleases him because God is the one who is at work in you. Because you've already been saved. You are one of his children. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you're not a Christian and you're trying to do good deeds to earn God's forgiveness, it doesn't please him. It is filthy rags. If you are a Christian and you're doing deeds to please him, it's actually possible to please him. I mean, I hear sometimes Christian preachers tell Christians, well, Our deeds, it doesn't matter what we do, we can't please God because all of our good deeds are filthy rags. I'm like, no, that's not true. That is a total misrepresentation of Isaiah 64. That's true if you're not a Christian. 
and you're trying to earn forgiveness. If you are a Christian and you do good deeds with the right heart, the right attitude in the way that God wants them, that pleases God. That is an act of worship to God. As a matter of fact, that's an expectation and a command from God like it is here. So we need to work out our salvation. So all this is really is these nine points is just here's some things to think about that might help you work out your salvation as a Christian in fear and trembling before the Lord. One more Ephesians 2:10. Ephesians 2:10 coming right off of verses 8 and 9 the great salvation verses of Ephesians Ephesians 2:8 and 9 uh, by grace you have been saved if you're a Christian and it came through faith. It was not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Salvation is all of God. It's a gift from him. It's not a result of human works. You can't do it. Why? So that nobody can boast. Boast only in the grace of God, not in yourself. Oh, okay. Well, wow. So salvation is of God. Eternal life is of God. Forgiveness is of God. He, it's initiated by God. I didn't do anything. Well, is there anything for me to do? Should I just be a passive, idle Christian? No. That's why God gave us verse 10. Listen to this. Because you are a Christian and you are saved because for we Christians are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. That's literally what that means. Really? His handiwork. Well, have you seen my spouse lately? Well, no, they're, if they're a believer, they are a masterpiece from God's point of view. For we are his crafty work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's why we're masterpieces made new in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. God saved us to do good works. We don't do good works to get saved. God saved us to do good works. I bark because I'm a dog, not to I bark because I'm a dog, not to become a dog. So this is the place of good works. I do good works because God created me as a masterpiece. I was created in Christ Jesus. I was created for the purpose of doing good works. And these good works God prepared beforehand. Get this. The works that God wants me to do and fulfill, God actually prepared those works for me in eternity past. That's amazing. It's mind-boggling. So that we would walk in these good works. We would conduct ourselves in keeping with these good works. That would be the pattern of our life. This would be a model. These would be disciplines, spiritual disciplines in our life. Philippians 2.10. So there's just two. James 2 says, faith without works is dead. So you call yourself a Christian and you have no fruit in your life. It's dead. You're just, you're hypocritical. You probably, maybe it could be that you're not even saved. James chapter 2, we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. That means we're supposed to make a difference. We're supposed to look different, speak differently, act differently, live differently. Galatians 5, fruits of the Spirit. These are the fruits. These are the deeds of the flesh. These are manifestations that you might be someone who's not a Christian. And he lists all those sins, envy, fighting, quarreling, hating, immorality, drunkenness. If that's characteristic of your life, then you're probably not a Christian. But if you are a believer and you are a Christian, you have the spirit living in you and the spirit of God who lives in you is helping produce godly fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And those become the fruits of your life, the pattern of your life, the evidence of a spiritual change in your life. So that's the mandate. So let's go ahead and look at these nine specific areas where God calls us to be faithful well what about faithful i gave you a definition there faithfulness this comes right out of first corinthians 4 2 where paul reminds christians and himself that since i'm a christian i need to be a faithful steward of things god's given me if you're a christian god has given you many gifts and he has expectations for you and for me and the main thing he wants us to be is faithful that was probably the main point in that matthew 25 passage that i just read what is jesus saying there what is he expecting he expects faithfulness from believers and he's the judge. He defines faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Here's a definition. It is the manifestation, something you can see, of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Those attitudes that I just mentioned. It's the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit that pertains to loyalty to God, to Jesus, to the Bible, to the Word, to Scripture, and trustworthiness. Faithfulness speaks of being reliable, consistent, 
disciplined. Self-control is number nine of the fruits of the Spirit. You cannot be faithful without being self-controlled. You cannot be faithful without being disciplined. You can't be disciplined unless you are self-controlled. You can't have self-control unless the Spirit of God is manifesting that fruit in your life. Self-control, very incredibly important. Disciplined. Faithfulness, persevering. Faithfulness, stable, constant, regular, follow-through. Huge. That's faithfulness. God wants us to be faithful stewards. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, we're reminded of that in Scripture. God expects stewards to be faithful. He will judge us for our faithfulness with respect to abilities, gifts he's given us. What is stewardship? It's protecting, investing, and deploying or using wisely the gifts and blessing God has entrusted to you as a Christian. Get this, in service to others and in and unto God. It's not about serving self. So... That's another important thing. So look at these nine things. They're, all, they're not about serving self. They're about acts of worship to God and in service to others. And then finally, uh, just three thoughts as we go through this list of nine. If you're not a Christian, I already gave you a warning. If you try to do these nine and you're not a Christian, they're not going to do you any good. God isn't going to be impressed. You're not going to earn God's forgiveness. As a matter of fact, you can't even do them with the intent that God expects. These need to be done at a real supernatural level in a way that only a Christian can do. So maybe you can do them at a superficial level, one degree to another because of common grace. But in the end, they're not going to do any good. They won't save you for sure. They won't keep you from going to hell and facing God's judgment. So that's if you're not a Christian. Then I got two cat. If you, there's two warnings for Christians, if you're a Christian here today and you're looking at this list of nine, there's two extremes to avoid. If you are a believer, and you and you do these things intently and enthusiastically and aggressively, with the wrong motives, not from the obedience of the heart, not doing it unto worship to God and service to others, but with wrong motives, this amounts to nothing more than a list of legalism. Oh, here's my checklist. Oh, I do that, and I do that, and I do that, and I do Oh, God must love me. I'm super Christian. No, you're super legalist. You're super, super Pharisee. And if you're super Pharisee, that means a lot of things. You look down your nose at other people, and you judge them because they only do five out of nine on the list. That's the worst thing you could do with the list. So that's a warning to really all of us. We can all have a tendency in some areas to be legalistic. Then there's the flip side, the other end of the spectrum. Uh, you look at this list and you're like kind of nonchalant or you actually minimize and kind of dismiss the list. But you're a Christian. I know Christians like that. I've had that attitude before. And your rationale or reasoning or thinking is, well, yeah, these aren't really spiritual things. Uh, a lot of these uh, they are just kind of practical things. They're temporal things. Yeah, that's true, but they're important to God because they're commands out of the Bible. They're expectations from God. So if you have a dismissive, that's really an arrogant attitude. Ah, these aren't real spirituality. I'm into more spiritual things. I'm not into practical things. <laughs> when I was in college, at master's college, and John MacArthur would preach in chapel on Mondays. And I, it was my senior year, last semester, last quarter of my senior year. And I, had, I lived off campus with three other guys that went to the college. And we were all going to different seminaries, the four of us. Bible majors all going to seminaries. And Johnny Mack, as we affectionately called him, uh, spoke in chapel that Monday. And he gave a very practical message like this. And it basically was kind of like being faithful in little things as you're going off to college now, leaving college. Go. And one of his points was clean your room. It's literally what he said. Point number five, clean your room. And there was just a, <gasps> there was a panic by some, a disbelief by others. And then he, he gave a whole bunch of verses out of Proverbs to back that up and other verses as well. Then we got home uh, that night and me and my three buddies, because we always talked about the chapel message. And one of the guys, one of my good friends, he was just incensed. He was disgusted. Can you believe what John MacArthur said today? Clean your room as though that's in the Bible. As though that is spiritual. And so we had a lively discussion for about a good 30 minutes. Trying to figure out, well, wow, why are you so offended? Well, his room wasn't very clean, number one. 
Um, but he was a Bible major and wanted to be a pastor, go to seminary. Ooh, I think somebody touched a nerve. Anyway, but his, his main reason was that's not really spiritual. This is shallow, temporal, practical. Bible doesn't say you have to clean out the microwave after you splatter stuff all over it. That's an illegitimate, over-the-top request. That was kind of his attitude. Anyway, he's changed since then because he got married. (laughs) He believes in this now, as do I. So let's go ahead and look at these. Just nine challenges for all of us as an assuming, again, I'm assuming you're a Christian who wants to please God in all that you do. So let's start with number one of these nine things. Begin with God. Begin with God. Little by little. I put Matthew 6. Jesus sums up the Sermon on the Mount, really. And Jesus gave a lot of list of things to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And it's like, wow, is that legalism? No. And then he sums it up and puts it in context. What I'm trying to get you people to realize and what you need to do is seek first the kingdom of God. That's the priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. All these blessings will be added to you. But here's your priority. Priority number one in in all of your obligations in life, all the things you need to do, your checklist. Priority number one, if you are a Christian, is put God first. Begin with God and do it in the little things and do it routinely and do it regularly and establish a pattern so that that's how you live your life. It makes a difference. That's what he's getting at. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the things that please God. Seek first the things that God thinks. Well, what does God think? Well, you're not going to know that unless you look in the Bible. You can't figure out anything that God thinks unless you look in Scripture. I wonder what God thinks. Well, there's only one answer. You've got to find it in Scripture. This should be our priority as Christians. As a Christian, you're a child of God. God is your Father. You want to please Him. You want to relate to Him. You want to start with Him. He is your priority. So we start with God and pursuing his kingdom and pursuing what pleases him and pursuing what is worship to him and what delights him and the only way we can find that is in scripture so put god first so the practical application might be the little thing getting god's word every single day well enough time i I try to do it but can't do it every day i do it once a week well then uh, change your schedule change your routine make it different make him a priority in, in other ways begin with god differently make it simple don't make it so difficult But keep in mind, he is the priority. We should want to know what God thinks before we begin our day as we begin our day or while we're living our day. We hear the news. We read the newspapers. We read blogs. We listen to TV anchors. If you're a Christian, you should want to know what God thinks. So you've got to get in his word. Make him the priority. And it's it's a discipline. It is arduous. It is hard. It goes against our nature many times. So you've got to be disciplined about it. It doesn't mean you have to get up and spend two hours in God's word every day. Make it simple and maybe uh, you just pick one verse out of Proverbs as you begin your day over breakfast because you're hearing the voice of God. God, speak to me today. Just one verse out of Proverbs to give me your divine wisdom that I might meditate on that today. Because the question is, when you roll out of bed, what's the first thing you do? Think about the agenda of the day. Check your emails. Check your text messages. Check the news of the day. Put God first. I'll never forget. It was probably 20, 30 years ago where John Stott, wonderful man of God, amazing, faithful preacher and pastor for 50 years over in the UK. I think he's in glory now. But I remember hearing an interview from him. And tell us, Dr. Stott, tell us about your relationship or Pastor Stott, your relationship with God. What's, what's a, day, a day look like in the life of Pastor John Stott? And he said, well... I've gotten to the pattern that the first thing I do when I wake up, I sit on my, the edge of my bed and I say, good morning, Holy Trinity. And just for a minute, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me a good night's rest and, and just another day to live for you. Lord Jesus, thank you again. And I've told you this a zillion times for dying for me. And I'm going to say it again. Holy Spirit, thank you for living in me and being my advocate as I pursue the day. Amen. John Stott. Powerful. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm also reminded of a friend I have from Texas at a church I was at. He's an elder there now. Twenty years ago, he was an elder. Or he was he was becoming an elder, but he's a good friend of mine. 
at this church. He was in the military. He's probably 40 at the time. He was a colonel in the military in the Air Force. And so we were discipling one another, just encouraging one another. And he just told me, you know, Cliff, I got saved in college, I think my freshman year. And then God just radically changed my life. And so it was in college and he knew he was going to go military. And he just, he made a, a commitment or not a, really a promise because he knew he might fail. But he said, Lord, since you saved me, God, I just want to give the beginning of every day to you by being in your word, even if it's just one Bible verse and just a, a prayer to you. Now, he was 40 at the time. He got saved when he was 20. And he said, you know what, Cliff, for 20 years, by God's grace, I've been able to do that. I haven't missed a day. He wasn't bragging. It was encouraging. It was challenging. It's like, whoa, put me to shame. 20 years, even if it's three minutes long, just get one Bible verse out of there. And, and pray to God. This is how he began his day. He would do nothing else. No breakfast, no planning, no work, nothing. God came first. That was 20 years ago. I just went to Texas, visited that church a couple months ago. We had lunch together. He's 60 now. Hey, Colonel, remember 20 years ago you told me about this thing you were trying to do? Begin every day going to God's word to get scripture and also saying a prayer and talking to him every without missing. How you doing? He said, Cliff, I haven't missed a day. I was like, wow. That was encouraging. He wasn't bragging. I had to ask him. Begin with God. Daniel, great man of God, he began his day in prayer on his knees. Daniel 6.10. So begin with God. Number two, keep your word. Keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. James 5.12. Guard your mouth. Keep your promises. Ecclesiastes 5, 2 through 7 warns us to keep our vows. If we're not going to keep our vow, then don't make our vow. That has all kinds of implications. Keeping our word, keeping vows. These are little vows all the way up to very formal vows. Vows in marriage and vows of other covenants. Proverbs twenty nine twenty. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? He doesn't think before he speaks. He speaks flippantly and says things that he shouldn't say making false promises that's hasty there is more hope for a fool than for that person so we've got to guard our words listen to jesus himself in matthew 12 talking about the accountability we have with the words that we speak matthew 12 36 every careless word every idle word that people shall speak they shall render account for it in the day of judgment that's before Jesus himself. Every idle word. That's actually frightening. We're stewards over our words, and in particular, we need to keep our word. We need to keep our promises. We need to follow through when what we tell people. That's integrity. That's godly character. Number three, plan ahead. Plan ahead. In other words, don't live by flying by the seat of your pants, not thinking ahead, not planning ahead, doing everything out of crisis. The book of Proverbs is filled with these exhortations to plan ahead. Here's one of them, Proverbs 10:5. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely. That's planning ahead. You're preparing for the winter a year from now by the work you're doing diligently now. That's planning ahead. God commends that. Can an unbeliever do that? Yes, practically speaking. Will they benefit? Yes, on a human level. That's the grace. That's common grace. But there are spiritual implications for the believer here because we can also plan ahead spiritually. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Proverbs 6.6. 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Why? Because they work hard and they plan ahead. Plan ahead. Luke 14, 28, Jesus even said that. Here's Jesus. For which of you, disciples, when you want to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? That's planning ahead, strategizing, trying to be wise. We want to be a good steward to see if he has enough to complete it. Could give you other verses as well. Proverbs thirteen twenty two. I love this one. It says that a wise and godly grandparent provides for his children's children. A wise and godly grandparent sets money, provisions, savings aside for the grandparents. 
God's pleased by that. Plan ahead. We had a guy who I appreciated at one of the churches I used to work at. He did the accounting. We had a big staff. We had to turn our receipts in by before the end of the month so he could write our reimbursement checks. And <laughs> Some people wouldn't plan ahead, and they'd miss the deadline or just throw them all on his desk, and that would drive him crazy, and rightfully so. So he had in his office, you walk in, he had this big old sign, and it said, a crisis on your part, or lack of planning on your part does not constitute a crisis on my part. A lack of planning on your part does not constitute a crisis on my part. In other words, plan ahead. Very wise. Number four, be punctual. Show up on time. Now, I'm not talking about, oh, you're late a couple minutes here and there sporadically. This is routinely. You're, you're not on time. You tell people, I'll meet you there, and you're not there. As a matter of fact, you develop a reputation. Oh, they're late all the time. That is not good. That's your character, really. And it's actually kind of a dismissive attitude towards other people. They're sitting around waiting for you, twiddling their thumbs. Time and time and time again. That's rude. Be punctual. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. James said, I'll be there at 2 o'clock. We all have, you know, get stuck in traffic and have those occasions. And, and you need to apologize. I'm sorry, I'm seven minutes late. I, I lost track of time. I was being selfish. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I got stuck in traffic. There was an accident. Here's really the issue. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. That's it. If you are routinely, chronically late, you consider yourself more important than other people. Paul says, don't do that. Christ wouldn't do that. Let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Be careful how you walk, says Paul in Ephesians. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time, redeeming the time. Number five, pay your bills. That is a command. Jesus said it himself, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Paul says the same thing in Romans 13, 7 and 8. Render to all, that means pay them. Give them what they are due. Tax to whom tax, pay your taxes. Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, fear the office, respect the office, honor to whom honor, owe nothing to anyone. Oh, you haven't paid your rent for the third time in a row? Wow, and you're a Christian and your landlord's not a Christian? That's a terrible testimony. Or for the ninth month in a row, are you still owing money from, and you're not paying, you, you owe somebody, you said you'd pay them back, and it's been two years and you still haven't paid them back? What? Why not? This isn't about owing money or being in debt. This is about following through on your responsibilities to meet the deadline. Because Paul said, owe no one anything. Pay your bills. Leviticus 6, 1, we don't think about, but actually he's talked about in Luke 19, and that's restitution. That's also paying your bills. You destroy something, you need to pay people back, even if it was accidental. Leviticus says that you should restore what you took by robbery, what you took by extortion, what you took by way of deposit, or get this, or the lost thing which you found. Found a wallet with $150 in it, and it has the guy's driver's license, his address, and his phone number in it. Hmm, I wonder if I should give this back. Well, if you're a Christian, you want to please God, of course. With no expectations. That's the Christian worldview. That's a, a godly ethic. Number six, pursue excellence in all that you do. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, no matter, regardless of what you're doing in life, verily, do it with all your might. Do it to your utmost. The New Testament tells us why. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink, those are two of the most mundane, routine, blasé, regular, boring practices we do every single day. And Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is with excellence. Mark 12.30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That means with your entire being, everything about you, you are consumed with loving God, pleasing him in all that you do. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men. Do it with excellence. For some reason, Christians get mixed up on this at times, and they think, uh, well, they think being spiritual is synonymous with being sloppy or cheap or minimalist or clutter. 
or dirty and unsanitary. Because you know how the Bible condemns loving money? Then some Christians go to the other extreme and say, oh, I'm not going to love money. As a matter of fact, I'm going to live like a pauper on purpose, and I'm going to be a mess to top it off too, and I'm, I'm going to throw some dirt in there too. That, that's not what God is meaning or saying, but I, Christians sometimes think that way. Pursue it with excellence all that you do. Number seven, be orderly. Orderly, this comes from uh, a word cosmos used in a couple of passages in the New Testament. Cosmos from the cosmos, which are orderly planets. They're orderly. God created them, and they stay in order. They stay in proper order. They function exactly the way they're supposed to. So there's a place for everything and everything in its place. That's where we get that word, cosmos. This is a requirement for elders. They are to be cosmos, orderly, sometimes translated respectable, not the best translation, but orderly is actually better, orderly. You, you live a balanced and orderly life. This takes discipline, follow through. I was talking about that with my seminary students this week as we were going through the qualifications of elders. We got to that one, and I said this is kind of like uh, living orderly. Everything uh, is under control, and you're disciplined, and you can answer questions, and you're not afraid of questions like, let me see your car. Let me see the inside of your car. Let me see the what's on the foot of your car and the dashboard of your car. Let me look in the trunk of your car. And some of them were getting nervous. <laughs> one of them said, can you look at it Saturday? said, yeah, I'll look at it Saturday. Now, before I said that, I knew I was going to say that in class, so I cleaned out my car before I said that. <laughs> anyway, let me see your closet. That could be embarrassing. That's why you get married. That's what a wife is for. But anyway, that's true. We all have weaknesses, and together we balance each other's weaknesses out. Two are better than one, says the Bible. We're not going to excel in all these areas. We need help. Be orderly. Don't be lazy. I want to read this one because people are surprised by the translation. First Timothy five fourteen. I want younger women to get married and get this. And one, one translation says keep house. That is not the Greek word. Here's the literal Greek word. I want young men, uh, women to get married. And. Oika despotane. Whoa. To be a despot of the house. Whoa. Is that saying what I think it's saying? To be a ruler of the house. Whoa. Are you sure about that, Pastor Cliff? I'm positive. That's why one translation of the Bible, excellent translation, says manage the house. Keep it orderly. The minister that married my wife and I on our wedding day, he reminded us, he reminded me when I was taking my vows that your wife is the queen of the home. Gulp. I do. But that's in keeping with 1 Timothy 5.14. Manage the house. Rule the house. Manage the house. Take care of the house. Keep it orderly. There's some authority there in decision making. Put the couch here. We'll get that piece of furniture. Put that one out there. I don't want that in here. Yes, dear. Number eight. Work hard. Work hard. Genesis 3.18. You will work hard. You're supposed to. In toil, you will eat by the sweat of your brow. That's God's expectation. You have a hard job, you have an arduous job, you have a difficult job. Well, good, you're in God's will. That's what it says in the Bible. It ain't going to change. It ain't supposed to change. That's the calling and lot that God has given us is living in a fallen world. Proverbs 14, 23. Proverbs just rewards hard work. All hard work brings a profit. There it is. But mere talk leads only to poverty. If you're a Christian, you should be the hardest worker wherever you work. People should look and say, wow, that person has an incredible ethic. Why is that? Because Colossian reminds us that actually our boss is Jesus. It's not your manager or your boss who's a knucklehead, if he is. It's Jesus is the boss. He gave you that job. He rewards you for that job. He helps you persevere in that job. Number nine, avoid excuses. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. The sluggard says, the lazy person says, there is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. That's an excuse. Oh, I don't want to go work today. There's a line outside when there isn't. So that's what we call a lame excuse for justifying your laziness. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. The sluggard says, the lazy person says, the person who doesn't want to work hard says, there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square when there isn't. Again, and just a lame excuse for not wanting to be a hard worker. On God's behalf. So there's nine challenges. 
maybe you can meditate on those and think about those and ask God to help you in your own life. I want to close with this passage. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 3 and just be reminded of what we said earlier that we can't do any of this on our own, right? It has to be with God's help. It has to be leaning on the indwelling Holy Spirit where he is providing supernatural strength. It has to be in keeping with God's word, all of these principles. And it is in it's out of a devotion and heart of wanting to please God, our creator, our savior, and also being a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we can be salt and light in the world in which we live. So here's a great reminder. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding in anything that we do. In all of our ways, day to day, let's acknowledge him. If we do, here's the promise, he will make our paths straight. As Christians, let's not be wise in our own eyes. Rather, let's fear the Lord in humility, turn away from evil. If we do, there's another promise. It will be healing to the body and refreshment to the bones. Wonderful promise from the Father. Let's pray to God and thank him. Father, we thank you for this day and just an opportunity to look to your word for practical truths that affect all of us every day, Lord. I thank you that you do care about all areas of our life. The big things and the little things. The great doctrines of the faith like salvation and also the mundane things in life. Like eating and drinking and how we manage our time. Thank you that salvation comes only through the work of Christ. And I pray that if there's anybody here that. Father doesn't know you, they're not a Christian, that you would keep working on their hearts with truth and help them understand your truth, knowing that they can come to you for salvation, forgiveness of sin. And those of us who know you, Lord, help us to keep leaning on the Spirit and not in our own strength so that we can live in a way that pleases you, all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.